podcast. The book of Acts picks up right where the four gospels leave off. The risen Christ commissioned his disciples to go into all the world and preach the good news. Acts tells us exactly how that happened, how the soul-saving message of the gospel spread throughout the entire Roman Empire in less than 30 years. Through enormous obstacles and without many resources, proven leadership, or modern technologies, these early Christians turned the world upside down because they had the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. This is their story. Let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this amazing book. And Father, we get to see a delightful turn of events here. Somebody living in darkness has seen the light. We're so grateful, God, that you can pierce into the night and you can rescue us, God, and put us on the road that leads to eternal life. We're grateful. Give us ears so that we can hear so we can hear and obey these truths and be blessed because it's not just hearing, it's in the doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've been saying, Christmas time is here and biblically speaking, it may be a surprise to some, uh, the birth of God's Son into this world, not exactly as peaceful and picturesque as the Christmas cards and carols might like to imply. I'm thinking of Silent Night, uh, Holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Uh, Not according to Matthew chapter 2, at least as we read. Uh, That's called the slaughter of the innocents in theological terms. And so, yeah, actually the Bible describes the spirit of Christmas and the intention behind it more like a declaration of war, as I've been saying. And so here in chapter 9, the battle rages. We're in the thick of things and things are heating up as the two sides continue to go at it and slug it out here. Now the Apostle John just uh, affirms this idea by saying the reason the Son of God appeared, that would be Christmas, was to destroy the devil's work. And what was the devil's work? It was to blind the eyes and the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, and so be saved. That's his mission statement. That is, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Jesus came to bring us light, to tell us the truth, and to snatch us away out of the power of the evil one. 1 John chapter 5 says the whole world lies under the spell of the evil one. But whosoever trusts in the Lord who hears the truth and sets their hearts to obey and to surrender will live forevermore. So uh, here in Acts 9, a surprising and much welcome turn of events here from the Christians there living at the time that someone has been miraculously unblinded from Satan's darkness. They, in fact, have seen the light and the glory of Christ Quite literally, Paul, the apostle in his former life, he was 
enemy number one, as the church might call him, uh, leading a frenzied mob of haters of all things Jesus and gospel, arresting, imprisoning, flogging, and ultimately killing believers. And we saw last week in a beautiful move of poetic justice, uh, Saul is on his way to arrest Christians, and he himself is arrested apprehended by the strong arm of the Lord. The Lord appears to him, and he's blinded, and he is led by the hand into Damascus, and is graciously hosted by the very Christians he came to arrest and persecute. Now he's in their home as their guests. After three days in the dark, we saw it last week, no food or no water, Uh, His vision was restored. He was baptized. They shared a very happy meal together. And then this, verse 20. At once he, Saul, who's going to now use his Greek name, Paul, from now on, began to preach in the synagogues at once (laughs) that Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is divine. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the guy who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests in Jerusalem? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. We'll pause there, and yes, indeed, we did uh, read this. I didn't have a chance to kind of drill down deep into especially two areas that I feel that just needs a little more elaboration. And so we're going to do that in regards, emphasizing this time the, the change in Paul, as in everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. There's an encounter, there's a change. Or the encounter is not real. And so also the immediate desire to tell others. You know, so we see this happen. Now, note taker's a new person. He's a new creation, isn't he? And big changes that often astonish there in verse 21 onlookers who know the before and after <laughs> pictures. They're just amazed. How in the world has this happened? And the miracle of a life that's transformed is really uh, lends credibility to the message. And so, of course, it's not always this extreme. It's not uh, always uh, happening overnight, the changes. Uh, But though some things absolutely have to happen at the moment that you believe, because the Holy Spirit comes in raises you to new life, and that new life will show itself. It will express itself through moral transformation and a change of worldview. Uh, So through Paul's pen, he'll he'll say, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. You don't fix up your life with a change of do's and don'ts and uh, some new philosophy, or you're turning over a new leaf for the new year. No, no. Genuine salvation is an encounter, a supernatural encounter with the living God who comes into your heart and changes you and transforms you and makes you into a new person. So sexually immoral people, they become self-controlled. Those who have a lot of pride, they're self-centered, they become humble 
and other-centered. Drunks and addicts become clean and sober, and the greedy become generous. Anxious people find peace, and angry haters of Jesus and his people, like Paul, now love the Lord and his children and the message they once so vigorously opposed. At once, Paul is sharing the message he once tried to destroy. Yeah, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, one of my favorite chapters, uh, verses 9 through 11, lists a whole bunch of uh, vices and lifestyles that evidence a heart that's unchanged and therefore not going to heaven. And he lists all of the vices I just listed to you. And then he says, and such were some of you. We're all in the list somewhere. We're all in that list somewhere. And he says, but you were washed. You were forgiven. You were set apart by the Holy Spirit. And Saul, the persecutor, now is Paul, the preacher. At once, he begins to share the good news. I was doing some marriage counseling. And speaking of a changed life, (laughs) uh, they weren't believers, friends of friends who go here. And so I was honored to just share the gospel with them and marry them to unbelievers, you know. And uh, during the times together, uh, they wanted to pray to receive Christ. And so I, they did, and happily. Um, I ran into one of them at the store, and uh, he says, I, oh, I'm just picking up something to bring over to the fiancé's apartment. And I said, I thought you guys lived together. And he goes, um, we're Christians now, Pastor Ross. Remember? And and I said, yeah, yeah, I do remember, actually. But, you know, that was fast. And he's like, we didn't want it. We didn't feel comfortable in a Christian church with a Christian Bible, with a Christian pastor saying Christian vows and then living together. And everybody knows that. So we want our friends to see there's a change. And some of our friends were like, ma'am, sorry to hear you moved out. Things are bad, right? No, things are very good. Actually, we're more in love than ever with ourselves and with one another and with the God who gave us life. And so, yeah, verse 21, hey, Saul, aren't you the dude who's tearing up Jerusalem, dedicated to destroying these Christians, and now you're one? Didn't you come here to arrest them and haul them back to the religious tribunal for preaching what you're preaching? And he says, I encountered Jesus. I saw the light, I heard the voice. I said, yes, Lord, the old is gone, the new has come. So yeah, that's, that's the truth. You don't want to take away, listen to me. <laughs> being a Christian is meeting the Lord and being changed. And he puts a new heart in us, a new spirit. He takes out the stubborn heart and gives us a tender, responsive heart, Ezekiel 36. And you'll recall, Ananias, we can overhear the prayer. Blind Saul sitting there, he lays hands on him and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And he did. And at once he began to change his tune. That's what we do. It's only natural. A new way of thinking, a new way of speaking, a new way of acting, right? At once, you're going to tell people, I mean, it's only natural. If you've got good news, you don't keep it to yourself. 
you get a big raise, you get a big promotion, somebody's going to get married, somebody's having a baby, somebody's worrisome doctor's report comes back all clear, you keep that to yourself? Does that make any sense? So he's like, show me the way to the synagogue. Let me preach to my Jewish homies, you know, because they're, they're his brethren of sorts, they're related. And they're like, Paul, they're not going to receive you at the synagogue. They kicked us out because we're Jews and they consider us traitors because we've gone with Jesus. And he's going, no, at once I have to. Why? Because time, the clock is ticking and people die. And if they die without Christ, they die without hope. And so, yeah, um, uh, he's at once changing his tune, and he's going to speak of Jesus being the Son of God with all its uh, wonderful personal applications. And so, yeah, that's what we do. We tell people, even if we're shy or introverted or not seen uh, as trained or whatever, the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus touches her heart. Uh, she's notorious for just having five five failed marriages. And I, I hate to say it, but the guy she's living with at the time, she's living in sin. And Jesus lets her know about it. Her heart is touched. Jesus has been talking about living water. I'll give you that. And then she's like, hey, the Messiah will tell us everything. We don't need, I don't need to listen to you. And he goes, oh, by the way, I'm he. I'm the Messiah. So she goes running back into town. Has she been to Bible college? Does she have a cleaned up life? No, she has nothing except she'd been touched. Her eyes got open. Oh my word, everybody listen up. Come meet a man who, she knew everything about me. Could this be the Messiah? And half the village got saved before Philip even got down to Samaria. That's just amazing. And so, come on. Yeah, I'm introverted. Yeah, I don't even know where to tell him to turn. I got saved. I walk out of a disco. I've never touched a Bible, never been in church. No Christian led me. I had a vision, and I got it. God is in heaven. <laughs> Jesus died for our sins. Uh, there's a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. Amen. You know. So I go into my apartment, and I ga- gather two of my roommates, and I say, God, and I saw this Gideon Bible, which I had been seeing because of God. Every day I pass the bookshelf in the hallway, there's a Gideon's Bible in this godless den of iniquity <laughs> with me and my roommates, 19 years old. And every time I pass the shelf, I see it. It's like God saying, look at the Bible. And I'm like, I don't want to look at that Bible. And so I knew where a Bible was. I walk in saved and spilling over Jesus. And I walk in and I grab that Bible, I open it up. It falls to, I don't know where it fell because I don't know the Bible. And I'm like, listen, guys, Jesus is real. I heard his voice. There's a heaven. And, and don't go to hell. Don't go to hell. Jesus died for us. You know? And they're, 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 you know, I didn't know what I was saying, but I just kept saying it in different ways over and over again, as you well know. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm able to do that. <laughs> and so I started there without nothing except the knowledge of, oh, my word, it's true. There are two roads. One goes to heaven and one doesn't. And my job is to say, hey, the bridge is out. The bridge is out. Many summers ago, we were in a cabin up at Hume Lake with our teenagers at the time and a couple of their friends, the boys anyway. In the pre-dawn hours, everyone's fast asleep. The boys are up in the loft. And one of Zach's buddies 
wakes up and sees an orange glow coming from downstairs and smoke and says, Zach, Zach, wake up. I think there's a fire. Zach, Zach. And Zach says, hey, man, go back to sleep. Stop bugging me. Stop it. Stop joking. It's not funny. Go back to sleep. And he's trying to go back to sleep. And he's like, Zach, Zach, there's fire. There's a fire. I smell smoke. Sure enough, they all start screaming and yelling, fire, fire, and letting the rest of us sleeping in a house that's on fire know and be alerted so we could head in the right direction out. Spiritually speaking, that's what we do. And we managed to get the, a very serious fire uh, under control, thank the Lord. Uh, we never uh, got invited back to the cabin. But, you know. Anyway, there, uh, yeah, that's another story. And so, yeah, you know what? If you know that the bridge is out and off the proverbial cliff will go many travelers to a place that Jesus called the eternal garbage dump, Gehenna. That's what Jesus used the word to describe hell as a smoldering, fiery garbage heap, a landfill for lost haters of God. Now, of course, he died for everybody so that nobody would ever go there. And hell was not even created for man. It was created for the devil and those who followed him, the angels, the demons. And apparently anybody who wants to pay their own way and not accept a free pass out. Zach, 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 wake up. There's a fire. That's what we do. And by the way, when they tell the story and why Zach refused to listen to him, he said to his friend, it didn't sound like there was anything desperate in your voice. It was so odd. He said, you're like, Zach, Zach, there's a fire. Zach, Zach, there's a fire. And that was so telling to me. When I heard him say that, I'm like, oh, hey, man, man, there's a hell. You don't want to go there. Really? Think about how Jesus describes hell and let us change our tone just ever so slightly would be helpful. So yeah, uh, Jesus is the son of God, is the centerpiece with all its implication. Um, and then from his own teaching, he says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is the son of God, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the one, you'll be saved. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he's alive and well, <laughs> you'll be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of this Lord Jesus will be saved. So a man recently was complaining to me about obnoxious Christians who are constantly pestering him, trying to save him. And uh, I said, wouldn't you do everything in your power to help someone not wind up in, quote, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is called the second death, Revelation 21 at verse 8. Yeah, he said, if I believe that that was the case, but since I don't, it's just irritating. And I say, trust me, looking back from whatever destiny you choose, you will not consider those who tried to save you irritating. 
You will either be filled with eternal remorse or you will forever be grateful. Those are your two options. But you will not, in either case, look back and roll your eyes at those who tried to save your wretched soul. Amen? Amen. At a cost to them. At a cost to us. Nobody wants to hear that they're sinners and hopeless and helpless, and that's why they want to kill him. That's why they want to kill him. And so, yeah, let's take a look at that up close. Verse 23 after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. <laughs> by the way, if you do the math in the New Testament, scholars tell us the many days equal 72 months. Verse 24, but Saul learned of their plan. <laughs> Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. Why can't you just let the guy kick the guy out? Agree to disagree. You have to kill him? Verse 25, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Uh, he tells the Corinthians or the Galatians that it was Peter and James, the Lord's half-brother James. They were uh, all afraid of him, not believing him that he was really a disciple. Uh, but Barnabas, verse 27, takes him, brings him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on the journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him. He's legit. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so we'll pause there. Okay, honeymoon phase is over. The initial wonder of the novelty of the killer of Christians becoming a Christian, it's worn off. Now the message that once made him furious is infuriating and offending others because that's what the gospel does. The good news is always preceded with a little bit of bad news. The little bit of bad news is that you're a sinner, you're helpless, you're hopeless, you're going to be judged, and there's only one way out, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's a little offensive to some people. And so, uh, yes, a new life for Paul uh, here uh, but the same old response, note takers, the same old response. Uh, there is persecution and pushback. And so, uh, yeah, they're not happy with the gospel <laughs> or those who preach it. And so verse 23, you have conspiracy to commit murder, ironically, by religious men who would say that they love God with all their hearts. And so, yeah, after a while, three years, unbelieving Jews get together to see how they can kill Paul, verse 23. And so it begins the fulfillment of a word from the Lord that he gave Ananias back last chapter when Ananias, brother Ananias, receives a vision or a dream from the Lord to go and lay hands on this former killer of Christians that he might restore his sight. And so he's going to lay hands on him. Uh, but he tells the Lord, he's a savage, Lord. This guy's done a lot of, uh, caused a lot of suffering. And the Lord says, hey, listen up. Sadly, he's going to find out what it's like to suffer great suffering because he's a Christian now. And so these words are going to come true right here, right now, right away three years of this, and they turn on him and they want to kill him. And you know what? He's going to live 30 years from this time. And they will persecute him to death for 30 straight years. 
until they win. And God says, enough already. Send them my way. And they behead him at the end. And so, but the whole time he says to the Corinthian friends, he says, listen, I've suffered a lot. I've been in prison frequently. I've been flogged severely, exposed to death again and again. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians, that famous list in chapter 11, uh, verse 24 of that chapter. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was attacked with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, uh, spent a night in the day in the open sea. He goes on, danger here, danger there, danger from fellow Jews, danger from the Gentiles, non-Jewish uh, people. And he goes on and on. And you know that list? He's got 10 years of suffering left to endure from the time of Second Corinthians. So that long list you see, there's 10 more years. 10 more <laughs> years. And why? Why the passion to kill this kind of man? Conspiracy to commit murder. Why? Same as his master. You know, he's telling people the truth they don't want to hear. You know, like Jesus says at the Last Supper, he goes, this frenzy to kill me, the Son of God. Truly, as the Psalm says about me, they hated me for no cause. Yes, there are reasons why you hate the truth, but they're just excuses. They're not solid reasons because the truth is the truth. And goodness is goodness. Just because we don't want any part of it, Jesus' verdict was this, light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light it's because their deeds were evil. That's John 3, right after John uh, 3.16. Yeah, you know when your eyes are accustomed to the dark and someone comes in with a flashlight... You're not happy with them, right? You're irritated. And when someone comes in with a flashlight of the soul, (laughs) the word of God is sharp like a sword. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, it cuts into the human heart and it gets to the place where spirit and soul meet. That's deep. Why? To reveal the thoughts and the attitudes, and to judge them of the heart, the attitude of the heart. And that's why people say, let's kill the guy with the flashlight. We have to. We hate the flashlight. And the one who holds it, he's going to be a casualty too. And so the inevitable pushback here from the sons of darkness, uh, boom. And so more than just annoying, why do they got to kill him? Why do you got to kill Christians? Well, you know... (laughs) He's good at what he does. That's the bottom line. He's gifted. He's trained. He's gone to the best schools in the Roman Empire. He's studied under the greatest teacher of all time, Gamaliel. He was famous. There was nobody like him. And he had natural born giftedness. He was a genius, albeit using it in the wrong way. But then when the Lord found him, he started confounding, baffling, and silencing his opponents and proving Jesus is the Messiah. I love this quote. That's why they want to kill him. The greater one's ability to cause men to see what they don't want to see or admit what they don't want to admit, the greater the rage one will inevitably incur. (laughs) So, yes. Uh, What about Paul's message is so infuriating? Well, just like somebody just recently told me, are you saying that I'm a sinner? 
Well, no, I'm not saying that. The Bible says that we're all sinners, me too. Well, it doesn't help when somebody says, I, I consider myself a pretty decent guy. I said, well, well, I'm sure compared to thugs and killers, you are a pretty decent guy. But you've got your own problems, sir. You've got your own problems. I'll ask your wife. She'll tell me. <laughs> and what are you going to do about that? And so, yeah, that's why it's so infuriating. And so they have a plan. Let's ambush the guy as soon as he tries. He's not from here. He's going to go home sooner or later. And, you know, we'll just watch the case. Morning, noon, and night, the assassins take their turn to kill one of the greatest uh, guys who's ever lived, keeping close watch for a chance to just kill him. And yes, indeed, when he tells his friends at Corinth about the incident, looking back, he said he lets us know something that we don't know here. The governor of Damascus posts the guards waiting to kill him. And so commentators suggest that the wealthy Jews living in Damascus uh, paid a handsome price to the governor. Believe it or not, the governor could be corrupt. And so <laughs> that's your fault right there. I didn't see that coming so much. And yes, and so, yeah, moving on. There's. They post the guards, and so the conspiracy, though, they tried to keep it uh, down low and hush-hush. But you know the Lord. He's got that omniscient thing. He knows everything, and he likes us a lot, so he often will eavesdrop on the bad guys and then reveal it to his people. That's what he does, you know, and that's what happened here. They found out because God knew about it and told them. Well, here's the deal. It reminds me of this delightful story in 2 Kings chapter 6. Israel's Old Testament enemies, the Arameans, which are the modern-day Syrians. And uh, the king of uh, the bad guys is really upset because they always camp somewhere to ambush Israel. And every single time, Israel takes a turn and avoids them. And it's almost like somebody's telling them. So he pulls in the soldiers and says, which one of you is it? Which one of you is a traitor and a spy for Israel? And because we sit up here, and they're going that way, and then they suddenly turn. So, so it has to be. Somebody is telling them, who is it? And one guy uh, chimes in and says, oh, king, listen up. It's not us. It's this dude called Elijah. Uh, he goes and tells the king of Israel what you're whispering behind closed doors in your most private rooms of your palace. And that's what happened here. The Lord has heard the governor's conversation. The Lord has told a sympathizer with Paul and the believers. And the sympathizer told Paul all about it. So what to do? So the brothers just happened to know a brother and his family whose apartment house adjoins the city wall with the window, right? Just like, guess who? Rahab, remember her? Rahab had an apartment in the city wall with the window that she let the scarlet cord down over, and that's what's going on here. And so one of the brothers looks to Paul after a home fellowship group, and he says, Paul, do you have a fear of heights? <laughs> 
uh, can you fit in a laundry basket? Because we're going to stuff you in a laundry basket, put a lid on it, tie it to some ropes, and then dangle you out the window in the middle of the night and lower you down to the ground. And so he agrees to do that. And off he goes like some thug, the greatest Christian that's ever lived. And what a surprise for those who unrepented (laughs) try to kill people like Paul. When they stand at the great white throne and see the honor afforded that Apostle Paul. Wow. There's uh, People are in for big surprises. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And wow, it's going to be amazing. And it seems like any second we're going to see that happen with the Lord's appearing. Um, so he's on the lamb. He's in a pickle here. Precarious situation. He's going to go back to Jerusalem. Not to an adoring wife. Oh, no, no. She's going to divorce him. And not to a place of honor on the Supreme Court. He's not going back to his old job because those guys in three years have heard what's happened and they are set to kill him as well, as we're going to see. So what's the guy to do? He's unwelcome with his former friends. How about the Christians? Surely Peter, James, and John, the pastors, let's call them the pastors of of the church I tried to ruin and practically did. Saul led the persecution that destroyed the church at Jerusalem. And only Peter, James, and John and the apostles remained. There were probably scattered handfuls here. But the mega church that we've been reading about for for chapters, gone because of him. And now he's knocking at the upper room door for Peter, James, and John. And what does 26 say? They're not buying it. They're not buying the story. They're scared of him, and rightly so. They don't believe he's really a disciple. They've got horrible, fresh memories of this monster guy. Scars on their backs because of him. And he's at the door. Hey, brothers in Christ, here I am. Um, praise the Lord, brothers. And so they are, they are like, they, they send probably Mary, one of the Marys, there's a million of them, <laughs> to the door and say, oh, you just miss him. They all just stepped out. Just, they had to run 12 errands, amazingly. <laughs> and yeah, so that's how I picture it. And at some point, you know, a closed door, no thank you, uh, would have offended many Christians uh, of our day, like the bank robber or the pathological liar or the serial cheater comes to Christ. Believers know the before and after stories, and there's legitimate trust issues. Needs time. Sorry. That oftentimes the one who commits the sin doesn't want the time. Let's forget about that. Let's move on. Come on. Hey, praise the Lord. Yeah, I know Stephen died, and I know I split the church, and I know I did this, that, and the other, but it was all ignorance, but I've seen the light. We need a little time. We need a little time. And that doesn't give um, credence to those who want to uh, hold their feet to the fire, holding grudges and putting them through it because of their past. But there's some sort of balance to work out there. You know, so Paul doesn't have a meltdown. You know, the door gets shut. Ah, They don't want to see you, man. Sorry. You know, maybe later. He doesn't go after all I've done. You know, I risked my life for three years. They've been trying to kill me or whatever. 
you know, no. Yeah, fine. Peter, James, and John don't want me in their little clique. Well, then forget about it. That's how some would be. But Paul's got wisdom. And he's got a big heart. And he understands, I hurt them. I killed one of their friends, or I facilitated it. Two thumbs up, kill him. I split their church. Of course, they're hesitant. They have good cause for concerns. But God saves the day, and he always has one of these big-hearted guys around, uh, Brother Barnabas, who they nicknamed. It's not his real name. His real name is Joseph. And uh, they nicknamed him Barney, which means son of encouragement, meaning, wow, you are comfort incarnate. And so, and encouragement. So Barnabas gets wind and he knows him and God made sure he befriended this Saul Paul and he brings him in arm around. This is how I picture it. And he says, hey, listen, the Lord appeared to him. Guys, look, I know. Look at me. My head is still on my shoulders and I'm I'm this close to him. You know, kind of thing. And uh, tells the story about how he's preaching uh, fearlessly risking his life. And then privately, this is what I imagine Barnabas doing. Barnabas going in and saying, listen, guys, listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. He's smarter than all of us put together. He knows the Bible better than all of us times a hundred. I never heard anything like this. You will never, when he opens his mouth, you are not going to believe it. Well, yeah. Peter will say in the New Testament, wow, that Paul He writes, and things are very hard to understand sometimes. You see? Even in the Bible, Peter has to say, wow, about this guy. And so, and then here's the thing about him. It said, and you'll never know it. He doesn't even know how smart he is. And if he knows it, he doesn't act like it. Guys, you've got to give him a chance. Trust me on this. You know, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The world may run out of its grace for you and your shenanigans, and your life may take a, a dark turn. And nobody wants to be around you anymore. They're just tired of it. But there's one. There's just one. Barnabas. If you don't have one, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, Pray. And better yet, one commentator said this, better yet, be him. Be the Barnabas. Because that's how you get friends. You don't get friends coming into a place, throwing out an unfriendly vibe, and just wanting everybody to come and talk to you. You know how you get friends? You're the friendly one. That attracts friends and like-minded friendliness. And so be a Barnabas. Uh, You'll be glad you did. Uh, Let's finish up. Last paragraph. So Saul stays with them and moves about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. That ought to uh, sound familiar. But they tried to kill him. Now again, two paragraphs in, and there are two conspiracies to commit murder. Verse 30, when the brothers learned of this, we always do, (laughs) they took him down to Caesarea, a seaport, and sent him off to Tarsus, where he's from, where he's going to spend about eight years, according to the New Testament. 
Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, with Paul now gone, enjoyed a time of peace. I like that. I think there's a connection there. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So note takers, new person, a new passion, and a new place to go home for a few years, perhaps up to a decade. And you know uh, Tarsus is never going to be the same. A beautiful picture. Don't miss it here. Verse 29, he's debating the Grecian Jews. The Grecian Jews, uh, as we learned in previous chapters, are the DNA Jews who were born abroad, who spoke Greek, not Hebrew, who immigrated to uh, Israel, just like Paul. Paul was born abroad, speaks Greek and Hebrew, and probably several other languages, uh, but he's got a heart for the same people who Stephen had a heart for, because Stephen was a Grecian Jew as well. So now we've got the guy who helped kill Stephen preaching where Stephen left off to the same crowd that now wants to kill him. This is amazing. And I can just feel it in, in, in Saul's heart. Stephen, brother Stephen, I helped send you into the presence of the Lord. And here I stand with the same synagogue, the same people, the same places where you stood, risking my life. And would to God my face shine as yours did. And would to God my reaction, if they get to do what they want to do, I know they want to kill me, but if they succeed, may I go out with the same gracious spirit, Lord Jesus, as you gave Stephen. That was his prayer. And so just a beautiful thing. Oh, God just just does that in all of our lives. Well, what is wrong with these men who are listening to the guy they know who was used to be on their side leading the way to kill Stephen and now that guy is preaching the gospel to them. What's wrong with them? Why aren't they saying, oh man, this is too much. I'm into this whole Jesus thing because it's just too much. They've heard Jesus speak. They're old enough. They've, they've lived the right age. They live in the right day. They, they've heard Jesus. They've seen the miracles in the temple. That's where they hang out. Jesus did dozens and dozens of miraculous sermons and deeds there in Jerusalem. They've heard it. What more do you want? I mean, they've heard Paul and Stephen and Jesus and miracles and still not an inch. Some people and all people who end up in hell have to work hard to get there because God just doesn't want anyone to perish. So he'll go right to the dying breath right to the two guys on the cross. Anybody want to come with me? And one says, I've got a change of mind. I know it's the last second. Is that okay? Truly, I say to you today, done. You're going to be in paradise with only minutes to spare. Yeah, because God loves us and doesn't want anyone to perish. And so, yeah, I don't know how you can continue <laughs> to work yourself into a place where God has to tell you on that sad last day, not my will be done. Sadly, your will be done. He will not force you into heaven against your will. So, yeah, let's finish up here with a few thoughts. You see, you know how sad, actually, how sad 
Jerusalem, as Jesus said when he looked at Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, you stone those who sent to you. How I had often longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, that you're not willing. And you just see it over and over again. And then he says, now look, your house is abandoned and desolate, pointing ahead to what? Is it three more decades? AD 70, the Romans come in and level the place, kill everybody, scatter the Jews again, and they don't have a place for 2,000 years until 1948, from Jesus' time, from the writing of this book. 2,000 years of, of just wandering. And then he says in keeping, and he says this 12 times in the Old Testament, behold, I will gather them together from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, with great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. That's Jeremiah 32, but there's 12 other ones like that. And guess what? You get to live in a time where we can look back to 1948 and say, he kept that promise. There they are. They're in the land again. And there they shall be and they shall dwell in safety, but it will take <laughs> living through the apocalypse, but they do turn and they do become a Christian nation according to this Paul and the Holy Spirit writing through uh, Paul. And so, yeah, so finally they recognize that it's too hot for him to stay in Jerusalem. They ship him off. And just notice, we close out on this, uh, the, the unbelieving Jews and the Messianic Jews, as we're called, who Jews by uh, DNA, uh, accepting Jesus, Messianic Jews versus the unbelieving Jews, uh, they're, they've had a truce. And so the war of, of Christmas, it has seasons of, of just heated battles. Like I heard like just a few months ago, you know, your pastor almost died. And then you had a, a bunch of public criticism that was humbling and difficult while we're struggling with a pastor who's fighting for his life. And then what happens? Then baptisms and three services and more people and the Lord just encouraging the church by the Holy Spirit, strengthening and growing us in numbers, living in the reverence of the Lord. Amen? <laughs> I Look at this. Look at this service. It's, uh, it's packed in here. And it's pretty full in first, and it's doing pretty good in a, at 11.30. Three services. Why? Because it's not always the heat of the battle. He gives us times of respite. Times where he says, we're going to enjoy some peace. Let's pray. Father God, we're glad to be in a time of peace, but whatever time it is, if it's a time of persecution or a time of peace, if it's a time of trouble or a time of prosperity, it's just win-win with you, God. We know we've read the last chapter. We know you win. It's a shared victory. We win too because we're connected to you. Bless us, God, this day. Help us shine the light, God, for you this Christmas time that others would come out of darkness and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You've been listening to The Rock's podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.